Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. This week, we're going to talk about crazy volatility in markets. We're going to discuss Bitcoin fees, transaction fees, which are at all-time lows. And we're going to talk about Ethereum's forthcoming merge upgrade and progress that the Ethereum developers are making. As always, I'm Alex Thorne. I'm the head of firm-wide research at Galaxy Digital. I'm your host, and I'm joined today by Christine Kim and Lule Mascal from Galaxy Digital Research. Hey, Christine. Hello, Christine here. Hey, Lule, how are you doing? Hello, I'm doing well. Great. So let's dive right into it. I mean, there's been tons of volatility in in equities and commodities and bonds and crypto. Give us an overview, Lule, of of what we're seeing in the market today and this week. Yeah, we came into yesterday uh, CPI print and today's PPI print with some hawkish comments from Brainerd, who is typically dovish. Uh, those comments led investors to position pretty bearish, go short stocks, short bonds. Uh, and then we got a CPI print that was just over expectations. Actually, core came below and PPI today that was above. Uh, that led to a bit of a run, repositioning, um, and uh, yields uh, have looked to make a near-term peak. It's crazy because the the you know we we had a bit of a yield curve inversion last week, which has I guess rebounded. I think we were, um, you know, twos tens were were negative. Um, now we're back up like thirty three bips positive or something like that. So it's just the chart looks wild if people pull that up and on their own. Um, just really wild uh, moves happening. Commodities also all over. I mean, the, I guess the shutdown in Shanghai is, is causing um, oil in particular to retrace back to basically pre-Ukraine war uh, levels. Um, and, you know, it just seems like, you know, I will say a shout out to my, my nuclear friends, um, nuclear energy, uranium still trading very well. Um, and but, but in general, I mean, the inflation is crazy. I'm seeing it in my everyday life. I was in a bodega in New York this morning getting a breakfast sandwich literally written, handwritten on a piece of paper, all prices as listed are $1 higher. Like, just like we're just raising prices, right? It's getting crazy. It's incredible. Yeah, the the, the gas came in around 48% uh, increase year over year, which is really scary. So the food and gas tend to be the most volatile. Uh, what do you think about the correlation to, to crypto? It seems like maybe this is peak correlation. Do you think that maybe it could it could slow down here um, in, in these volatile time periods. It seems like the, the equities to, to crypto correlation really tightens up. Yeah, I mean, depending on how you look at the correlation, and there's several ways, right? You can do pure correlation. You can run a regression. You can, there's several different ways to do it. In any case, crypto to equity correlations are high. They're basically at the highest they've been. I, it feels like we might be at peak correlation um, and that we also might be at near-term bottom in, in both crypto and have seen uh, near-term bottom in, in Crypto and equities, very possible. Um, market is now like expecting significant hikes, true and aggressive, um, you know, balance sheet uh, runoff, um, and so it doesn't really seem from a from a central bank standpoint that that it can really get more hawkish, right? And so, and and market has priced that in. It feels like so. You know, I don't know. Cryptos were not doing well. I mean, you know, we were sort of lackluster throughout last week uh, during the Bitcoin twenty twenty two conference. In Miami, uh, which was a great conference, had an awesome time there. Lule and I were both down there. You know, we were sort of sideways and and and, and slightly lackluster. And then this week, you know, obviously we've broken forty several times. I think as as we speak now on Wednesday afternoon, we're back up uh, around forty one one on Bitcoin, and, and ETH is trading over three thousand again. But 
Um, you know, we broke 40 and, and 3000 on both of them uh, over the last few days. Basically, everything in crypto is off, like, you know, around five, you know, all the majors are basically off like two to five percent week over week. Bitcoin's down five. ETH is down 2.8. You know, on a 30 day basis, Bitcoin's only up three and three and a half percent. ETH is up almost 20 percent on a 30 day basis. Um, and then year to date, Bitcoin's down 15, sorry, 14 percent. ETH is down 18 percent. Other coins are down a lot more. Avalanche off 30%, Solana off 41% year to date, right? BNB off 20%, Matic off 45%. Um, so, you know, cryptos are still down year to date a fair amount. It, it's hard to see how we really uh, go super lower in the near, near term. Um, but obviously over the next couple of months with the shifting macro situation and, and geopolitical risk. And I mean, look, COVID feels mostly handled in the US right now. But we've said that before over the last couple of years and, and it's come back. Um, obviously, we're seeing a pretty, pretty shocking images and stories out of Shanghai. Um, if that spreads, then, you know, COVID can come back here and, and you know, mess up the, the, the markets as well. So, uh, you know, I, I somebody asked me last week what I thought where I thought Bitcoin would be at the end of the year. I genuinely think it could be lower or higher. <laughs> I'd be shocked if it goes below 30. I know Arthur Hayes was saying sub sub 30 Bitcoin in his recent blog, um, you know, the former CEO of BitMEX. I, I still struggle to believe that um, we built a lot of resistance down there, uh, or I should say support down there. Um, but, you know, it could definitely retest that. I mean, let's, let's be real, right? Unprecedented hawkishness, uh, which has followed unprecedented money printing. I mean, the Fed Fed policy doesn't look, uh, you know, consistent over a, a multi-year time frame at all, right? We've been whipsawing and then and then with the, you know, Russia, Ukraine, who knows, right? And it's just a lot. Um, all right. Well, that let's, you know, we're not going to market commentary. It, it goes out of, uh, it becomes stale as soon as you say it. So we're not going to belager uh, more more discussion on that today. Instead, uh, talk about Bitcoin fees. So I, I'll, I'll kick this one off a little bit. Um, we'll have a little bit of a discussion. So um, we published a report last Tuesday, so April 5th. Um, where we pointed out that Bitcoin transaction fees are at literal all-time lows in Bitcoin terms. So one Satoshi per byte of per, per virtual byte of data in a transaction um, is the lowest that it's ever been. And, and you can check out that report. It's on our website, galaxydigital.io slash research. So it has all the good charts and stuff in there. But um, literally multi, you know, all-time lows in, in dollar terms, not at all-time lows, but that's solely because you know, Bitcoin is, uh, you know, six or seven X um, BTC USD. Bitcoin is trading at six or seven X the price that uh, it was the last time uh, fees were this low in dollar terms. So it's still remarkable. And really what's interesting, like, you know, fees, you know, Bitcoin um, transaction fees, it's it's a market and you, you basically participate in a, in a in an auction, right, where you don't know necessarily of some indication of what other people are paying, but um, whatever you bid um, is what you end up paying if your transaction is confirmed, right? You can't, so you can overpay. Um, and really what you're doing is you're competing to for block space. You're, you're basically saying we have a fixed amount of block space. I want my transaction in that block. You know, how much do I have to pay to incentivize miners to put it there? Um, and so fee markets are very dependent on the amount of block space that's available. Um, and so the reason, the very clear first order reason why Bitcoin transaction fees are so low is that since June, blocks haven't been full overall, right? So we've had no big backlog of transactions in the mempool. 
Um, and what's really interesting about this is that, you know, we we ran to new all-time highs throughout the fall. And every prior all-time high run, basically back to like 2013, was accompanied by a major spike in transaction fees. And that's because the price movements cause, you know, volatility and, and increased speculation. There's more sends and withdrawals to and from exchanges, right? There's more activity overall on the network. And that wasn't true. That isn't true uh, in the fall, uh, since June of 2021, transaction fees have been at this all-time low level. Um, so why? Why, right? And obviously the reason is that blocks haven't been full. But why haven't blocks been full? Blocks filled up during every prior all-time high run. Why didn't they fill up in the fall, right? And and I looked at a lot of reasons for this. We heard some wild theories, you know, there's rumors of miners stuffing blocks. Obviously, the China's ban on mining really kicked in in June 2021, so that's a notable thing to have, right? But it, it, that, it just doesn't make sense, the, that, that concept. And so we were digging around, right? And I, you know, I, I thought, you know, I knew that there were these scaling, um, you know, things people were using, SegWit, um, but I didn't think it could be responsible. But really, when I started to look, I found that, you know, several major uh, a growth in the use of several tech scaling technologies really occurred right around the same time. So, in June 2021, for example, the use of segregated witness transactions leapt like 15 to 20 percent. It's now around 83 percent of all transactions on the Bitcoin network. SegWit um, does uh, it, it, it essentially is, you know, part of the Bitcoin development style of seeking to scale via compressing, compressing transactions, right, fitting more into blocks rather than making blocks bigger. And SegWit usage dramatically went up right around June 2021. Also, transaction batching, right, which isn't uh, which is more of a technique, but the ability to say you're an exchange and Christine and Lule and I all request a withdrawal around the same time. Well, if you send those as all separate Bitcoin transactions, it's much less efficient, a much less efficient use of block space. Um, but what you can do, of course, in Bitcoin is you can send one transaction that has many payments, many outputs embedded within it. And actually, Bitcoin Optech, they wrote and have a great blog on this. So if you search Bitcoin Optech uh, transaction batching, they point out that by just getting to four outputs instead of a you know standard two outputs, right, which would be one payment and one change sending back to me, just getting to four makes uh, the per payment fee something like 60% uh, cheaper, 60% more efficient. And if you look, transaction batching, we have this chart in the report, absolutely spiked. It's been up huge since 2020, but today more than 50% of transactions on the Bitcoin network have three or more outputs. And again, there's a huge spike right around the middle of 2021. Um, so this makes the use of block space more efficient, right? We've, we're packing in more economic activity into a smaller data size. And again, other similar stuff happened, like basically like the use of op return transactions, which are sort of using Bitcoin for arbitrary data, as opposed to for economic on-chain transactions totally came down like and and basically tether which which operated on the omni network and which used op return basically fully finally ceased <laughs> no activity on omni basically since june 2021 you know interestingly transactions themselves are basically flat since 2019 with a little bit of a run in 2020 and 21 when we take out op return um so i don't actually think the block space being empty in the fall of last year is really due to significant decline in transactions. I really think it is due to, um, you know, increased usage of these scaling technologies. I will point out also Lightning Network, huge growth in 
channel creates and then subsequently um, active channels right around June 2021. <laughs> um, those charts are in there too. Um, and then lastly, one thing we did notice with miners that's interesting is, is there was a big move, obviously, out of China. And miners went to a lot of places, but a, one place where a lot of the machines ended up was the United States. And, and a lot of those machines ended up in the hands of publicly traded mining companies. And these companies, more than really any in the history of Bitcoin that have, have mined BTC, um, have really been funding primarily through the sale of debt and equity rather than the immediate sale of Bitcoin. Now, there's some evidence that some have begun to sell some Bitcoin as prices have come down and and, and probably capital markets have become you know less you know uh, willing to, to, to buy the debt and equity as they were you know six months ago. But there are several big miners who expressly say they don't sell and won't sell any Bitcoin. Well, that that's a pretty big shift in, in sort of the topography of and, and style of uh, and behavior of miners. And, and that means fewer transactions for miners, right, who would typically earn Bitcoin on a, on a regular cadence from a pool and then probably sell some of that Bitcoin on a regular cadence to pay for their operating expenses. They're sending less because a bigger portion of the of the network is is. And, and miners are in the in the United States and are these public companies who sell less, right? I also do point, I think this is sort of one of the weaker reasons, but I think it is notable and we've got some data to show that they're they're selling less and, and that would also ease actual transaction um, counts on the network. So I'll just stop there. The report really just focuses, points out what fees are and then focuses on why I think they're so low um, today. I don't think they'll be low forever, but I'll, let me stop there. You know, the last thing I'll mention is that this raised a lot of questions. This was pretty widely shared last week during the Bitcoin conference. And a lot of uh, people were raising questions about the long-term viability and security of the Bitcoin network, you know, given what we talk about, like the security budget, right? So miners are compensated by, in two ways, right? By newly minted issuance, right? New Bitcoin that they're mining and, and also by transaction fees. And of course, Bitcoin is quite well known as having a fixed supply, ultimately terminating at 21 million coins. It achieves that by um, having the amount that miners earn per block every two, you know, 210,000 blocks, which is about every four years. So at some point, um, if subsidy goes away and fees are low, you have to ask yourself how miners will be compensated. Um, I'm not going to let me pause and see if Christine and Lule have anything they want to add here uh, before we talk about that. I don't go into the security budget question in this report. It was already a 12 page report, um, you know, just explaining why fees are low today. Um, but that's that it raised a lot of questions about that. Yeah, a couple of interesting um, points for me when when going through this really awesome piece was also just kind of seeing this 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 meeting of these three different inputs, so, right? The miners are not selling, the change of user operation and scaling uh, technologies are all kind of occurring at the same time. But while the network was still getting or receiving quite a few users and quite a few transactions, so it wasn't this idea that the network wasn't being used. The network reacted and, and the community reacted in different ways and seeing how the network adapted was really interesting to see. And also one thing, especially with the SegWit and Lightning charts in that, in that paper, and I recommend everyone um, um, uh, definitely read it, is you see the slow adoption to some of these scaling technologies and how it takes a while for, for the network to, or and users, and, and sometimes it's these bigger institutions and bigger companies that need to adopt it for their users to adopt it. And so that's also one thing to note and one thing for, for me as well to, to look out to the future and to know that any soft works or any updates, to know that those will take time and, and it can also help to model for the future. Um, and one, one thing I guess I'll, I'll pose to, to you, Alex, as a question is, is uh, you know what do you think about what's the importance in maximizing this block size 
you know, in the future, is that something, and I know we talked about different ideas on how, what you can do, but is maximizing that block size and making sure it's full really important for the security of the network or how does that, how does that play into it? Yeah. Great questions. I, I will point out just on your first point about some have said that, that, you know, blocks aren't full, not because of scaling. Sure. That has something to do with it, but that after the May, 2021, um, like all time high and then, and then pullback, right. We came down all the way to 30 K and Bitcoin and, that retail got wiped out and that they didn't really come back in the fall. I, I don't believe that's true. I've seen, you know, there's some evidence you can find on chain for that. Transaction counts are a little bit lower um, for sure. But I, I really do think it's primarily for, due, due to these very notable jumps in scaling. I mean, truly all right around that time, right? Um, I think when it comes to maximizing the use of block space and having blocks be full, it is true that if blocks are not full, fees are going to be very low, no matter how big the blocks are, no matter what the, Right. There's just you don't need to pay a lot if there's extra space. Right. So fees go up when there's a big queue of pending transactions. Um, and that happens when the blocks are full. Um, I think, look, long term, I mean, there's questions about this. You know, I've heard I've heard interesting arguments on both sides. I'm really not that convicted yet, but I will say one way or another um, about whether, you know, what this possible even problem or solutions are to. Is there even a problem? Some say there isn't. I, I'm not totally convicted one way or another um, about how we will pay for mining in the future. Um, but I do think it's not a problem today, okay? But it's also not a problem in 100 years. It's a problem much sooner than that, most likely, if it is a problem. The last Bitcoin is, you know, if we just project forward in terms of the halvings, we, we, we estimate will be mined. The literal last piece of BTC will be mined sometime around 2140, maybe a couple of years, probably a couple of years earlier. But um, but that's not when we really, if it is a problem, should be concerned about this. 99% of all coins will have been mined just 10 years from now, right? So it is a problem sooner than 100 years, but it's definitely not a problem today. And 10 years is a long time in, in, in Bitcoin. So, um, you know, the different ideas are one, look, obviously you could add a perpetual subsidy, right? But that would break the fixed supply of, of Bitcoin at 21 million coins. And I think most Bitcoiners agree, certainly I do. That without, you know, that changing Bitcoin's fundamental monetary policy like that would basically make it not Bitcoin. So that's, I think that's basically off the table. The other ideas are either how can we encourage more fees or some believe you don't, um, that, that miners will mine at a loss, that, that businesses will mine altruistic, altruistically or that um, even countries, if Bitcoin is this incredibly important global asset that countries will operate on the Bitcoin network just like they operate other core infrastructure today. I don't love that last argument. I think it admits that Bitcoin's incentive model won't work and that we'll rely on some other some other way for mining to occur. But, um, you know, I do think there are ways. First of all, you could literally introduce like a base fee that is possible. It can possibly be even done through software rather than a protocol upgrade, which has already happened, right? Nodes don't relay zero fee transactions today. We could have them not relay transactions below five sats per byte or something. That's that's a possibility. Um, Luke Dash Jr. has long talked about making blocks smaller. <laughs> we could make blocks smaller. I don't know how that upgrade would look, but um, there are ways to artificially um, change this. And then and then also, you know, I, I loved Pete Rizzo's piece we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Christine, he talked about platform maximalists who really want Bitcoin to be used even more as a platform, right? So more layer twos and more side chains and more other applications that interact with Bitcoin. And that would increase transaction demand overall. Um, but I do, I do think ultimately, I, I'm still not convinced on this idea that um, fees don't have to be higher long-term. 
I think they do. Um, I think about one vision for Bitcoin being the Bitcoin banks that Hal Finney talked about over a decade ago on BitcoinTalk.org, um, that you could see base layer Bitcoin becomes operated on by big players, even perhaps central banks and governments, right? And that most of us transact in smaller amounts on a regular basis, you know, on layer on layer twos like Lightning, right? And that, you know, really big settlements happen on chain. I think that vision for Bitcoin, if it if it is true, if it comes to pass, it, it can still be very effective at maintaining Bitcoin's core monetary policy stuff. And maybe I only do my inheritance or my mortgage or giant purchases or something where it's makes sense to to pay those high fees on chain. And otherwise I use a layered approach. I, I think that could work. And in that world, fees could be higher. It's kind of ironic to me how Bitcoin scaling solutions have been so effective at lowering fees that it's now created a problem or maybe not a problem now today, but it's created a discussion and a concern around Bitcoin's long-term security budget when many other blockchains, including Ethereum and other general purpose um, uh, purpose networks are, are trying to achieve scalability and trying to lower their fees and implement scaling solutions that will have long-term effects. Um, and so far, none of those scalability solutions have really uh, been able to work, especially on Ethereum. Um, but I think that just goes to show how much more Ethereum's style, like the kind of transactions and data that goes on Ethereum, how much more complex it is and weightier it is than on Bitcoin. And because Bitcoin's use case is so much more, is so much simpler and also trying to achieve much less, the the ease that developer has, developers of Bitcoin have in being able to make the network more scalable. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not other problems on Bitcoin that may potentially have to be solved in the future. It just means that um, scalability is not an issue for Bitcoin in the way that it is for many other blockchains out there. And so um, something to keep in mind in terms of like whitewashing or like kind of broadly like painting this whole space as like, you know, the blockchain trilemma scalability is is you know, what's going to be the the main um, the main downfall of why blockchains won't like achieve global adoption. I mean, clearly it's it's really not a not an issue for Bitcoin right now. In fact, yeah. it's so much not of an issue that in the long term, there may have to be other solutions <laughs> to actually reduce the scalability <laughs> of the network. I wouldn't say I, I have to push back a little, but I agree. I, I wouldn't say it's easy to upgrade Bitcoin, um, but I do think you're right. I mean, and I wouldn't say that Bitcoin, I, it is simpler. I wouldn't say that its use case is smaller. It's just clearer and simpler, right? It's a, it's a big, big, big idea, right? But I agree completely in the scheme of things. It's funny. It's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. When fees are high, they're like, oh my God, it's a huge problem. When fees are low, they're like, oh my God, it's a huge problem, right? It's just like, in any case, look, users are happy. Fees are low. Like the, the network's operating well. It takes a long time for people to really start using these these features, that's because they're backwards compatible, right? There's no hard forks happening. So you don't have to, it's totally opt in. And it's just great to see that after many years they are, we're gonna see something similar happen with Taproot, right? It just came in in November. It's gonna take years for it to be widely used and, and understood. It's an incredibly powerful upgrade. But, you know, again, the, the Bitcoiners aren't like adding, um, you know, quick new features, right? They're Segwit, Taproot, these are upgrades that like overhaul the real fundamental foundation of how Bitcoin transactions and and and, and more can work. Um, and that takes a long time to like, you know, trickle out into use cases. Um, so it is so interesting, though, Dan, if, 
bad if fees are high, bad if fees are low is, is what I'm hearing these days. <laughs> and you build confidence too. Knowing that SegWit and Lightning you know, have, have been adopted after so much time, it gives you a lot of confidence in Taproot that that you know people will come around and then people will build on it. It just takes time. Yeah. Maybe there is a utopia in which you have value and velocity. I think it's possible. Uh, <laughs> in any case, really interesting conversation. There was a lot of it on Twitter about this. Let's move on. This is a great discussion on fees. Urge everyone to check out the report. Christine, the ball is in your court. You wrote an excellent report last week updating uh, everyone on the state of Ethereum's merge to proof of stake. Um, there was a story in Bloomberg this morning that Tim Bako uh, confirmed on Twitter uh, uh, yesterday that Ethereum's merge would not occur in June. I thought that was humorous. I mean, and great that he confirmed that, but uh, humorous because we already knew that. He published that last week. We've also, I think, talked about it on this podcast several times. Uh, but why don't you give us an overview of, of what you wrote about in that report and uh, and what's interesting to you on this topic uh, at the moment? Yeah, definitely. I'm so looking forward to this year. Um, one of the main things that's going to happen probably before the end of the year is Ethereum's most complex hard fork upgrade ever in its history. And Ethereum, unlike Bitcoin, has undergone what um, more than seven backwards incompatible upgrades requiring all users and nodes to upgrade. This one in particular called the merge is seven years in the making. It um, is Ethereum's long awaited transition from a proof of work consensus protocol to proof of stake. And what that does basically, one of the primary motivations of doing that is to reduce the electricity consumption of the network. Um, the merge is anticipated to, um, to basically make Ethereum's environmental footprint 99.9% less. Um, one of the other major impacts of the merge is also its impact on ETH issuance. This part is, is something that investors and traders are talking about a lot because Ethereum's security budget under proof of work right now is about two ETH per block. But post-merge, that issuance will change from a fixed amount to a dynamically issued amount that, that changes depending on how many uh, validators are active and online on the network. But just generally, it'll also reduce that issuance from, reduce that interest significantly by making it really like small amounts of interest that accrue to validators and their staked ETH over time. When I was running a validator back at my old job for Coindesk, our validator accrued something like 0.0003 ETH per day. So it, it was very small increments of rewards that you get that you accumulate as a, as a validator. And the more validators that join the network, the less issuance you get over time. Now, granted, with the merge, the full transition to proof of stake will make it so that miners are completely booted off the network and the rewards from transaction fees and minor extractable value that usually goes to miners will now be redirected to validators. And so in this report, I mentioned that while you know the, the issuance of the network is dropping, we do expect validator rewards to more than double post-merge. But going back to kind of like more about issuance, I think the idea that Ethereum issuance is going to reduce um, strengthens Ethereum's investment case as a store of value asset. And for folks who have been following Ethereum for a while, back in August, Ethereum core developer 
developers also issued a upgrade to the network called EIP-1559 that basically upgrades Ethereum's fee market and introduces coin burns. Every time you send a transaction, now a portion of those fees are burned, taken out of circulation. And those coin burns are actually anticipated to, to take what is already a reduced issuance and now um, make Ethereum supply deflationary and contract over time. Um, so, so I would say electricity consumption and then also issuance and its impact on validator rewards are three of the most major impacts of the merge coming up. And um, with Tim Baiko, who put out his tweet this some this morning, this afternoon, saying that ETH merge was going to happen probably sometime more likely in Q3 of this year rather than you know, in June, in basically two months time, I think it just shows that developers are still close. They've got a, 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 some tweaks to, to get through and they still need more time to just make sure that they've crossed all their I's and dotted all their T's. Oh, it's the other way. They <laughs> dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's um, to make sure that the, the upgrade is, is ready. But um, pretty exciting things. I'm, I'm quite this is something that as an as somebody who's been following the Ethereum space for a couple of years now, I've been waiting for this to happen for so long, as I'm sure many Ethereum stakeholders have. So it's exciting times ahead. Yeah, um, it is exciting. Um, it has been a long time in the making. Obviously, many have wondered if it would ever happen. Actually, many networks, uh, altcoins have been launched based on prior designs for what used to be ETH 2.0. And I guess that's going to come later, the, the real scaling stuff is not part of this upgrade but many people were impatient around these upgrades to the point where you know several other networks were launched basically using early designs from this team and um and and i guess now it's 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 separate so which i think was smart in terms of you know pushing something right getting one done and then focusing on the other me and christine will debate all the time on on whether ETH you know is is going to be sound money versus whether bitcoin is better sound money I am of the belief that a credibly unchanging monetary policy is a core feature of sound money, uh, not simply a low or even negative inflation rate. But, you know, we, we have that debate, you know, it's fun times. <laughs> it is fun times. Definitely um, a lot of Ethereum investors very bullish on the merge and these changes to the issuance schedule. Also very excited that they can, uh, you know, without having to operate proof of work data centers, you know, participate in. Um, collecting fees and MEV and, and, and newly minted issuance. So um, a lot of interesting other stuff to talk about that on this that we won't, but like liquid staking is also very interesting where the idea that you can use something like Lido and, and stake your ETH, but also basically trade or do something with that ETH at the same time. Um, pretty fascinating concept um, that will, I think, have a lot of impact on the market also. Yeah, one, one of the things in that, in that paper as well um, was an interesting chart is actually showing how much more validators will be profiting post-merge. Um, I believe they're going to be absorbing some some um, transaction fees as well as the staking revenue. Uh, and so that was an interesting chart I really liked in there. And then and another really interesting point as well was, uh, Christine, you were sharing that with me as well, is this, this actually, because this is such a huge upgrade that there's two developer teams working on something like this. And we kind of went back and forth discussing about, uh, and Alex, you mentioned this called developer debt and, and, and making it so difficult to, to work on it in, in the future. Is that something that you think is... Is, is a concern of yours, Christine, maybe because you've been following the space so much and talking to developers or, or are those two teams working together so well and, and has, the, has the collaboration been uncomplicated, I guess is the question I'm asking. 
Yeah, I think it's a great question. And 100% it is a concern of mine and other Ethereum core developers. It's not a new concern, though. I think that the technical debt and the complexity of Ethereum has already been growing over time. I mean, simply with what Ethereum is trying to achieve, being the world's decentralized computer, being a general purpose blockchain that can scale to the masses, that's not an easy task. And that's not a task that I think can be achieved simply in the short term. Um, I think many core developers are aware that the complexity of Ethereum will have to be pared down over the years and, and how, how possible that is. Like, you know, I can't say for sure, but I know that all of the upgrades that Ethereum developers pursue is one that without it, I think, leads to poorer user experience, leads to a network that is just perpetually expensive and will brick, you know, like users who don't have a very high disposable income from using the network. I think these are all like necessary upgrades for Ethereum. And I think especially with the merge, I know that we're giving a precursor to it now, but in the future, I mean, in the very near future, before the end of this year, we are going to have more updates about how this is playing out in real time. Even with the launch of the Beacon Chain over the last, what, two years ago, I think um, we've seen that this technology is working. We've seen that this technology can handle 300, over 300,000 validators, 11 million ETH staked, which is roughly 9% of total ETH supply. Um, this network has been stress tested. Um, so despite the massive complexity and what a feat this is, um, I have high confidence that um, all of the, the preparations that have gone into making this upgrade possible will ensure that the upgrade goes smoothly. It has been a long time and a lot of work. So um, they've been very deliberate. Um, you can't you know, say they haven't. So I, I agree. And um, it's just going to be so interesting. Like, you're right. It is such a big project, like in the scheme of things, like to do this transition at all, let alone these other transitions later, they want to do what they used to call ETH 2.0, but all these scaling techniques. And now they're talking about dang sharding and, and basically making ETH more, you know, cheaper and easier for rollups and other layer twos to interact and all this. Uh, those are huge upgrades. It's just a massive, massive project. So um, really recommend everyone read Christine's report. We published it last Friday. Uh, I think that was April 8th. Excellent report on Ethereum's forthcoming merge upgrade. Before we leave, let's just do a quick couple quick hits. We've got some interesting, fun news here. Some of it's kind of wacky. Love your takes on this. First, I thought this was pretty big news. This came just following the Bitcoin conference. Block, the company formerly known as Square, um, is teaming up with Blockstream and Tesla to build battery-powered Bitcoin mining operations, solar-powered, using a lot of batteries. Uh, I'm assuming the batteries come from Tesla <laughs> in Texas, um, using solar to mine Bitcoin. Really interesting. Anybody have any thoughts on this? I think it's quite the statement that Adam Beck had said during his announcement during the, the Bitcoin Miami conference that Bitcoin mining, there's a thesis around Bitcoin mining that it can fund zero emission power infrastructure and build economic growth for the future. I think that's the line that has really been um, pushed by Bitcoin miners during the conference, but also trying to fight the FUD, kind of like the negative criticism around Bitcoin that truly I think is only going to get worse once Ethereum transitions to the merge. Um, so I feel like this kind of news is really getting ahead of all that, all that, I guess, negative media. Yeah, that's been a big part of the narrative for Bitcoin mining. All right, let's move on. Let's keep These are quick takes. We're keeping them quick. So I guess Facebook uh, released details on how it's going to monetize its metaverse, which I guess it calls Horizon Worlds, 
which you can only access uh, in VR. So um, I guess through the Oculus headset that they produce. And they're, they've got a testing phase and they're going to letting people sell items to users there. But I guess, you know, crypto and NFT Twitter was a buzz because Facebook uh, and Meta, I should call them. They're also the company formerly known as Facebook. Everyone changes their names these days and, and no one knows. But Meta um, is going to take a 47.5% cut on each transaction. Dang, that looks big to me. That doesn't feel like the promise of, you know, what they call Web3, does it? Not at all. Not at all. Um, <laughs> I, unfortunately, I, I, I have to have a, a negative confidence, I guess you could say, because it's Facebook or Meta uh, does have dominance. They sold 10 million units of the Oculus headset. Um, so they, they have some dominance in that space. And I just worry that they, that they could um, kind of control their metaverse, but they cannot own the metaverse. Cool. Uh, all right. Here's a, this one's wacky. Um, Coinbase is going to make a trilogy of films, I guess, in partnership and or about and or using Bored Apes. So they're partnering with BAYC. They're going to Coinbase. Let me say that again. Coinbase is making a trilogy of movies about Bored Apes. I, what, what do you guys have on this? What were your thoughts Coinbase on that? Coinbase is the next Netflix. <laughs> yeah. If you're a Bored Ape holder out there, go audition your Bored Ape. Uh, maybe you can make it in the film. That is crazy. I mean, I guess, you know, in this world, we are producing so many movies and shows for all these streaming services. I guess it's not that crazy that straight up corporations might like non-media corporations might start making their own movies, let alone Coinbase and Bored Apes. And it's a whole thing. I mean, but just totally wacky, interesting stuff. So Tether uh, is now uh, launching on a couple other networks. Kusama, which is that I don't even know. They call it a canary network. It's almost like a live test net for Polkadot. Um, and Tether, there are more than $80 billion of Tethers circulating around. I don't know. It's not that interesting, I guess. But, you know, it, Tether continues to be the largest stablecoin, um, which is just, you know, despite its detractors, I'll say. And I guess maybe the very last one I'll mention here is that Blockchain.com is now sponsoring the Dallas Cowboys. That, that's like America's team, not, you know. Course, I'm a Patriots fan, always will be TB12, baby. But goodness, that's the Cowboys. I mean, my gosh, this is this thing is real. This thing's getting big. You know, the Miami Heat was one thing, FTX, right? You know, all these crypto.coms everywhere. I think so. someone Coinbase is on, I think, the floor of the Brooklyn Nets. Um, but like the Dallas Cowboys, blockchain.com is such an elusive company. I understand that it's it's Bitcoin wallets, but it clearly does a lot that I don't quite understand all of its functions. I think they have trading, lending, exchange. They do at this point, but I agreed. I mean, it's just, it's been around a long time. All right, I'm going to call it. It's great to have you. Lule Mascal, Christine Kim from Galaxy Digital Research. I'm Alex Thorne. Thank you for joining us for Galaxy Brains, uh, and we will see you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on our research reports and what we are doing and working on at Galaxy Digital Research, visit us at www.galaxydigital.io research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. Those links will be in the show notes. Again, thanks, everyone, for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Galaxy Brains.